Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are glad that you are here. It is uh, always fun over the summer. We, we gain visitors and we lose some family. And so it's not fun to lose people. It's fun to gain people. And we look forward to when everyone is together. But welcome if you're visiting. We're glad that you're here. Um, as you get settled and grab your Bibles and pens and all the rest, I want to mention something that you'll hear more about in the next couple weeks. Um, as Steve has preached through Luke, often he references the places where Jesus is and how the setting connects to the teaching. And uh, GoTo Ministries that we're involved with has put together a teaching tour in Israel for January, January 2014. And they asked Steve to go and to do some of the teaching. And so we'll get more info out in the next few weeks, but if going to Israel and hearing the stories taught and the places that they actually occurred is of interest to you, then just kind of watch the bulletin. We'll have inserts and meetings and information and so forth. Um, and GoTo that's planning it has priced the trip quite economically. For an Israel tour, it's less expensive than a lot of them. So we'll get more info to you um, in the coming weeks. Pastor Steve just started a couple weeks vacation, so I have the privilege of uh, being in the pulpit today and next Sunday. And contrary to what your bulletin says, Steve will be back in the pulpit on August 4th. Um, so he will be back then. And if you're visiting with us this Sunday, I want you to know normally we preach through books of the Bible. Right now we're going through Luke. Uh, but over the summer we pause and do a different series. And this time we opened, we opened it up for questions. And so the congregation has submitted questions. And we're spending a few weeks answering those. And we've got one or two left um, after today when we're going to be doing that. And then um, Steve will kind of set up the fall and we'll be back to Luke in a few more weeks. As we work through the answers, please keep in mind, only God is all wise. And as we talk about the various questions that have been asked, there are a cloud of issues that can go with all the questions. And uh, we're not able to, to tackle all of those from the pulpit. And so if something, as we answer questions, if a thought is triggered for you that we don't get to address, come to us. We'd love to chat through it with you. Um, but we're just not able to address everything from the pulpit in one fell swoop. Uh, but let's answer with, oh, let's open today, sorry, with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. We gather as those redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we are grateful. Father, we gather not as those who have pleased you in our own accord, but as those who are resting in the perfect life of Christ and the fact that he brought you absolute pleasure in everything that he did. And in your providence and wisdom, you have credited that righteousness to those who are yours, and we are so grateful. Father, as we fall under your word today, we ask uh, that we would be transformed, that we would be conformed, but mostly we ask we asked that Christ Jesus would be exalted and that you, Holy Father, would be greatly glorified. I ask that it would not be my words that are proclaimed this morning, but that it would be your message for your people, for your glory and honor, King Jesus. We are your people, and we together fall before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Servicemen and pictures of their gals. If you've been in the military and have deployed or been away for a while, you probably had a picture of the gal that you loved back home, and we see it in movies all the time, right? The servicemen 
goes off and maybe the pilot's flying and there's a picture of his, his wife and daughter or something in, in the plane. Um, why, why do they do that? Why, why do we do that? Why do pictures and images work for us? Well, partly because God wired us to realize that the picture is not the end goal. The picture points to something greater. If that service member, while he was away for a while, started to make changes to the picture of his wife, maybe he realized, you know, I don't like blondes anymore, and he changes the hair to brunette. Or he realizes, I'm not so keen of the shape of her nose, and so in the picture, he changes the nose. If, if that happens for a while, that picture no longer represents who it's supposed to. It's supposed to point him and others to somebody. But when the picture changes, the original can't be known. And it would also probably cause us to question whether that service member really actually loves his wife back home. If you love her, you don't need to change her. Well, we're going to be talking about pictures today. We're going to be talking about the reality that those pictures point to and about the risk of, of defacing the picture and obscuring the reality that we're supposed to be pointing to. We're, as we work through questions, the question on the table, the question in your bulletin, is what is a proper understanding of men's and women's roles in the church? That's a prickly question, isn't it? <laughs> but we are going to fall under God's word and see what he has to say about that. But there's an underlying question that we need to answer. If we're going to answer a question about men's and women's roles in the church, there's a greater question that we have to answer first. And that question is, what is the purpose for which God made us man and woman? Why did God make us men and women? When God was creating, he had absolute freedom to develop the systems and the patterns that he would use. He could have made things any way that he wanted to. He could have had bubblegum grow on trees and apples come in wrappers. He had absolute freedom to do what he wanted to do. He wrote the laws of physics so that Brooks babble. And he wrote the laws of chemistry and designed chemistry so that flowers smell. And he created the atmosphere so that in sunrises and sunsets it glows and we go, wow. God intentionally designed it that way. The laws of physics, the patterns of biology, he wrote those out of nothing. He could have made everything any way that he wanted to. But he made it this way. He made us this way. There's a reason, and we need to see that reason. Why are men and women different? Why, why not? There, God did create organisms that are one kind of neutral gender, and propagation occurs. God chose not to do that with us specifically. He made men and women. Why? Why do Brooks babble? Why do men and women exist? God has reasons for all of that. And we're going to dive into the answer, but first I want to explain a couple things. If you are expecting this sermon to go in the direction of a list of do's and don'ts, of like seeing charts of stuff men can do and women can do, we're not going there. It's not going to be like that. So you might be relieved or you might be disappointed, but either way, that's not the direction we're headed. As we answer this question, second of all, we're going to be dealing with the roles of husbands and wives, men and women in the family relationship. That's part of the content that we're going to be looking at. Clearly, we're not all married. 
But nonetheless, these are biblical principles, and we can study the Bible together, and we can learn from that. And the posture that comes with the roles that we're talking about that we see in the Bible apply to men and women in every station of life. And so this will transfer. This is not a marriage sermon. This is a church sermon. But by God's design, there is incredible overlap. And so we're going to be talking about that. And third, as we go through this material, there are a lot of what-ifs and what-abouts that are going to come up. That is expected today. And often, those what-ifs and what-abouts that surface in your mind and when your heart kind of starts beating quickly, a lot of those are legitimate. And if you need help with those what-ifs and those what-abouts, God has given his church shepherds to help you through that process. And so come to the elders and say, you know what? I need help in this area. And they will gladly do that. But sometimes, sometimes, those what-ifs and what-abouts are us looking for loopholes. And so if we're perfectly honest, we want to approach this topic with a very sensitive conscience, and we need to seek counsel of wise people at times. So just keep that in mind as we, as we work through this. Uh, but let's dive in to our answer. So the first point in your bulletin was a question. The second is the answer. And remember, the first question we're answering is, what is the purpose for which God made, made us man and woman? And the answer to that, I'll read it a couple times, and then I'll unpack it in the minutes to come. The answer to the question for why God made us man and woman is threefold. To bear his image. To reflect the inner workings of the Godhead. And to display Jesus' saving work. There are three reasons that God made us man and woman to bear his image, to reflect the inner workings of the Godhead, the Godhead is another way for referring to the Trinity as a whole, and to display Jesus' saving work. That's a big answer, so we're going to step through that step by step. And the first step we're going to take is, uh, is called one image, two image bears. Jim read for us from uh, Genesis, so if you have your Bibles handy, you can turn back to Genesis 1, or it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, So follow along as I read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, and over the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We hear this reality so often that we can be in danger of buzzing right by it. We are made in the image of God. You and I somehow get to make the invisible God visible. We somehow get to make God tangible. Of all that God created, of all that God created, we alone have that privilege and opportunity. We alone. Nothing else does. God created awesome things, but he created Adam and Eve and all of their descendants 
in his image. Nothing else can do that. The heavens declare the glory of God, the Psalms tell us. And we've all walked outside and seen a sunrise or a sunset that just captivates us. This morning, on my way uh, to church, I, I, I turned west. It was early. The sun was rising, and there was this kind of dark cloud formation. And the sun was centered behind it. And so the sun rays are exploding above and below. And the rest of the sky is just this bright orange. Made me hungry for a peach. Uh, but it was beautiful. And I, and I saw it. And without even thinking, there was no filter. I just said, God, you're awesome. That is the effects that the, the fact that the heavens have on us by God's design. They're supposed to. Well, what would a sermon from Jeff be without a food reference, right? I grew up in Mexico. I love tacos. I'm okay with Tex-Mex tacos. I love real, authentic Mexican tacos. They're delicious. So you get them, and they're on their plate, and you have the tortilla, and the meat, typically steak, that's the best ones, with the green cilantro and the white onions, and that's all that goes on a real, authentic Mexican taco. And the meat is just all overflowing from the tortilla, so you actually get two tortillas, so you eat part, and then you put the rest on the other tortilla, and you get two tacos for every one. It's a great deal at the restaurants. Um, but before you get to eat your tacos, they're sitting there on the plate, and what happens with food when it has been prepared and is piping hot? It's giving off an aroma. And, and that aroma works to kind of get your mouth watering and it preps your tummy and you get excited and you're looking forward to what is about to come. But when you smell those tacos, you know that, that there is something causing that aroma. There is something behind the aroma. There is something greater behind the aroma. The smell points us to the taco. The smell isn't the taco itself. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory. And with zero offense to God, the glory of God is like the smell of the taco. It's incredible. We know that there is something behind it, though. The glory of God isn't the source. There is a source behind the glory of God, like there is a source behind the aroma of the taco. The heavens declare the glory of God, and we step outside and we see the glory of God, and it's fabulous. But you know what? You and I, we get to represent the source of that glory. Think about that for a minute. What you and I do by simply being, we exist in the image of God, tainted, but still in the image of God. What we do by simply existing is greater than what the heavens do when they shout the glory of God every morning and every night. That's staggering. We blow right by that. But that is what we get to do as the image bearers of God. We declare the source of the glory that fills the skies. That is awesome. We get to make God known by simply being. That's all we have to do. We exist, and we make God visible somehow. It's a mystery. We don't totally understand that, but that's what it means to be image bearers of God's. The reality, though, is that there is no way that we can individually, accurately reflect God. 
He's just too vast, too complex for that to happen. So God intentionally places different parts of himself in different people. That's why there's different personalities. That's why there's different preferences. When God does that, he places different parts of himself into different people. Individuals highlight aspects of who God is. But in the gathering, we have a more complete and accurate picture. The gathering puts God on display in a way that individually we can't. A few examples of that. God is absolutely satisfied in himself. He has no need of anything or anyone else. He could have not created anything and been alone in the Trinity for all of eternity just fine. So he made some people introverts that can spend an entire day alone and be just fine. They're satisfied. They don't need other people. That, That is a little image of God. And yet, in his self-satisfaction with no needs, God overflows with love. So much so that he created people and pursues a relationship with us. And then, to picture that a little bit, he created extroverts that love to go out and meet people and hang out and get to know them. That's part of who God is. God creates with extravagant, breathtaking beauty. And so he made artists that can replicate that in small ways and can capture it in large ways. Because that's who God is. And God creates with extreme precision and efficiency and dependability. So he made Germans. You've got to reflect that somehow. Think about, those of you that have children, think about your children. Everyone reflects a little bit of you slightly differently. None of them are the same. Everyone gets a little bit of who you are, but none of them have all of you. God is just too big to pack himself into any one image bearer, so he made a variety. And part of the variety that God chose to make is man and woman. If we were all men, and even if there was a variety of extroverts and introverts, if we were all one gender, the image of God would be blurred. So he chose to make two. He could have chosen to make us any way. He chose to make us man and woman to reflect him. Being distinctly man and distinctly woman are required components of our ability to image forth God, to make him visible. If we mask what it means to be distinctly man and distinctly woman, We are masking part of what we can do to image forth God. We start defacing the picture when we do that. God made us that way. And so the first step in our answer is to realize that in order to reflect one image, God chose two image bearers, man and woman. And that's the first step in our answer. And the next step in our answer is is one that given the history of this topic, needs to be included here. And it's possibly easy for us to assume it and to move on, but uh, it needs to be an intentional part of our vocabulary on the issue. And the second step towards our answer is that while there are two image bearers, they share one value. It is grievous 
to look out on cultures around the world and back in history and at times right outside our door and to see God's image bearers being mistreated. It's grievous for any reason, but particularly so when they are mistreated for being made in the image of God as women. It happens and it is wretched. What God intentionally chose to do to make himself visible has at different times and in different ways become a source of shame and pain. And if you've been affected by that pain, I am sorry. And I don't expect this one little sermon or one point in a sermon to to undo that. But I do hope and pray that you are gradually encouraged and comforted by the truth of God rather than the lies of the world. God created man and woman with one value. And to show that, to make that tangible, I want to show you Jesus' response to, uh, to a woman and to a man in a society and in a setting where they were viewed vastly differently. I'm going to introduce the two characters, and you, you've probably heard the story. The, the woman in her society was valued at times below a dog. And the, this man would have been highly elevated at the pinnacle of his society. And Jesus interacts with both of them in one snapshot. And we're going to see how he does that. The two characters are uh, Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, we're told. He's intentionally identified that way, a ruler of the synagogue. The synagogue would have been, as in Jesus' time, that would have been the place where religious life happened for many of the more devout that had rejected the temple, and the ones that, that ran the synagogue would have been the pinnacle of society. And that's one character in the story. The second character is a woman who had had a blood discharge for 12 years. And she had been shamed and isolated and reduced to poverty because of her sickness. She would have been uh, unclean culturally, and so she was not allowed to be near people at all. And literally, flea-infested stray dogs were welcome in places she wasn't. Like, that's what society had done to her. And so society viewed her way down here and viewed Jairus way up here. And in one snapshot, they both come to Jesus with a need, and Jesus responds equally to both. Because in his eyes, there is no value distinction. Human society can distinguish values, but that doesn't make it true. In God's eyes, there is no value distinction whatsoever. So I'm going to read from Mark 5. It says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed and thronged around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather, rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up 
and she felt in her body that, that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And the story continues, and Jesus went to Jairus' house and brought his dead daughter back to life. Jesus made no value distinction between the two, because even though society casts some as of low value and worthless and others as very valuable, Jesus does not. Man and woman are made equally in the image of God, and we both share in that value. There is no distinction. Whatever difference society may hoist upon us, we cannot bring to the biblical text because it is not in the biblical text. And there, there are passages that it is very hard for us to, to walk through in the Bible without bringing cultural and historical assumptions about value and position. But they're not from God. So please realize that. The, the difference in value or worth that societies have hoisted upon men and women are tools that Satan can use to tarnish the image of God. This is a broken and needy world. We need to image forth God. And so he hoists lies out there to tarnish that image. And different values are, are excuses that we rebels can use to establish ourselves at the expense of others. But they are not from God. In an environment where men and women are valued differently, it is very, very difficult to speak of different roles. And so I paused to, to establish biblically. That was just one example. There's a lot of places we could go in the Bible to make that point. But even the fact that we are both made in the image of God, there is no value distinction. And so I, I want us to be aware of that as we move forward. I purposefully paused. There is two image bearers, but there's one value that is shared among them. Our next step in the answer to the question, what is the purpose for which God made us man and woman, is this, that we have one value, but two roles. We have one value, two roles. God created humans as man and woman on purpose. We've talked a little bit about why. It's needed to more fully and accurately bear his image. God chose to do that in the garden when he created. But there's, there's two incredible things that are made visible in the male-female relationship, and we're going to unpack those now one by one. First, the father-son relationship within the Godhead is made visible. The father-son relationship within the Godhead is made visible. 
The second that we'll come back to is the, the relationship between Jesus and his people is made visible. The relationship between Jesus and his people. Let's unpack the first one of those. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by making the father-son relationship and the Godhead visible. God is a triune God. He is three, and yet he is one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all fully, equally God in every way possible. God is one, but there are three distinct personalities within that. They are all eternally coexistent, all of equal value in the Godhead, and yet they have different roles. God the Father, this is, by the way, a very short summary, so uh, we could unpack this in many, many books and in many, many weeks, but if you, if, if you track each member of the Trinity through the Bible, their roles begin to surface. And in short, God the Father came up with a plan that was the overflow of his love for his son. God the Father came up with a plan that was the overflow of his love for his son. God the Son is completely devoted to the Father, and so he embraced that plan and carried it out. And the Holy Spirit now walks us through that plan. The Father planned, the Son carried it out, the Spirit tells us about it. He walks with us. Each member of the Trinity is absolutely, equally, qualitatively, quantitatively, in every way possible, God. And yet they have different roles. There's no value distinction, but there are role distinctions. With that in mind, I want to read 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. On first hearing this, we can often mentally line everybody up in a hierarchy. God the Father, God the Son, the husband, the wife. We can, we can line them up in a hierarchy like that. But look back at the sentence. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul actually goes out of his way to not create a hierarchy like that. He starts out say, stating that man is in submission to Jesus. He's writing to a patriarchal setting in which that would have been a pretty controversial um, statement, that the man is in submission. That would, have been, that would have gotten some attention right away. And Paul starts there. The man is under authority. Paul goes on, and he says that the wife is also under authority. But he doesn't stop with her. He doesn't end the verse with her. <clears throat> he cycles back around to something that we can forget about. Christ is under authority. You see, Paul isn't setting up a value hierarchy. That's often how we read this passage, and others like it. Paul is setting up role distinctions. This isn't a ladder that leads off with the father and, and the woman is at the bottom. That's not what Paul is doing. He is showing us that there is a, a, a correlation, a display of the father and son and the husband and the wife. Paul is setting up a display. He is saying that the relationship between husband and wife models the relationship between the father and the son. Husbands and wives, those of you who are married, you get to model the mystery of the Trinity. 
That's pretty staggering. When we try to explain the Trinity, it can get pretty complex. I've heard from a lot of people that aren't believers or are new believers, and they get tripped up on the Trinity thing. And so God intentionally created man and woman so that we get to model the Trinity. In marriage, husband and wife, two, become one. They, they each still have personalities and preferences and roles, but they are one. There is distinctiveness, but there is oneness. So it is in the Godhead. God is one, and yet there's three. We begin to see the Trinity in marriage. God is one, and yet in the, in the, in the relationship between the Father and the Son, the Father moves out of absolute love for his Son, and the Son is absolutely devoted to the Father. There's two different roles, two different relational roles within the Trinity that Paul says marriage is to model. He doesn't set up a value hierarchy. He sets up a correlation so that we can see the imagery. Let's stay with the, the Godhead for a minute. Is there a value distinction between the Father and the Son? No. There is no value distinction between the Father and the Son. They're both God. Does one get preference over the other? No. They're both God. In fact, out of absolutely overflowing love for his son, the father devised a plan in such a way that the son is exalted. And the fullness of the greatness of who Christ is is seen in the plan that the father unfolded. And the son is 100% devoted to the father. And so he carries that plan out. And he does it so perfectly that the might and the wisdom and the glory of God is put on display for everyone to see. That's the father-son relationship in the Trinity. That is what you get to model in marriage. In Philippians 2, Paul gives us a glimpse of the crowning moment when, when what I just said will occur. Have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of his servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In fulfilling the Father's loving plan, Christ is exalted. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses. And Christ out of devotion to the Father, fulfills the Father's plan, and the Father is glorified in the process. It is a mutual exaltation, each member of the Trinity striving for the good of the other. That's how the Trinity works. And Paul says that can be modeled in marriage.
That's pretty striking. Let's say that you have um, some non-believing friends. You're reaching out to them, gradually building a relationship with them. They're over for dinner, and you're, you're kind of walking through the gospel. You've had several conversations with them, and one of them says, you know, I don't understand the Trinity thing. At that moment, you have the opportunity for, I'm going to speak in the husband's voice here. He might be able to say, well, take my wife and I. When we got married, we became one. We were two, we became one. But even though we're one, we still have our distinct personalities. I love this woman so much, though. I'm absolutely committed to her best, to lay my, my life down for her good and seeing her, <clears throat> and seeing her thrive. And let me tell you, I love watching her and her element. It's incredible. And I know that she is absolutely devoted to me. Her heart is 100% mine. It's not split with anybody or anything else. She is devoted to me. It's incredible. And that's how our relationship works. And you know what? That's how the father and the son relationship works in the Trinity. They're one but they're two with two different relational roles. And out of that interplay comes our salvation. That's a powerful image to explain a very complicated truth. And God designed marriage precisely so that you can do that. That is an intentional part of the design. Think of it like a Reese's cup. More food illustrations. You know, they say that you're supposed to use illustrations about what you know. So, like, I've got food. Maybe coffee will be the one for next week. But in a Reese's cup, it's one, but it has two elements, right? Peanut butter and chocolate. And they work great together. The good of one is really highlighted with the presence of the other. Right? I, I love having Reese's fans in church. The peanut butter makes the chocolate just pop. And that chocolate protects the peanut butter and sacrificially melts if needed. It's just a great image. I mean, it's all right there. The father absolutely loves the son. And he works to see the son exalted. That is what he desires. And the son is absolutely devoted to the father, to fulfilling the father's plan so that the glory of the father is displayed in the process. In a family where those roles are not being played out, where husbands are not actively loving their wives, and where wives are not 100% devoted to the husband, the Godhead is not being displayed. The Godhead is not being displayed. Husbands and wives, you get to make the mystery of the Trinity tangible when you fulfill your roles. You lose that opportunity when you step outside of your role. That's pretty big. But there's more. There's more to the two roles that God has given husbands and wives. Husbands and wives you get to make the relationship between Jesus and his people visible. We talk about this one a lot more. Ephesians 5, 
Um, and it's here out of, out of time constraints. I'm going to summarize, and I apologize. I mean, no disrespect to the Word of God. I just happen to be very wordy. Um, but in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that marriage exists specifically, specifically to display the relationship between Jesus and his church. It's not a God created marriage and then Jesus came along and then, Jesus, then the church comes along and God the Father says, whoa, look, I didn't even realize it, but I've got a pretty cool picture right here I can use. It didn't happen in that order. Before there was sin, before there was a savior, before there was a gathering of the redeemed of God, God created marriage to model what he was going to do. And we now get to live in an era in history when we understand that picture. Before Christ, there were people married, but they didn't understand what they were displaying. We live in an era in history when we get to do that. And just as in the relationship between Jesus and his people, each has a distinct role, so in the relationship between husband and wife, each has a distinct role. Paul wraps up that section saying, referring to marriage, saying this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Jesus pours his life out for his people, literally, literally. And we, his people, respond with absolute devotion to our king and our savior. If our loyalties are split between our king and this world, we don't get to display this. Think about that. There is a lot in this world that grabs our attention. And if, if we have one foot in this world, or, or a chunk of our desires are being satisfied and expressed in this world, and then the leftovers are going to God, we're not displaying the right relationship between God and his people. That simple splitting of affections blurs the display of the purposes of God. That's how high the stakes are. We get to make God's purposes visible when we do it right. And when we don't, we blur it, we hide it. Husbands, men, when we grasp this, we should fall trembling to our knees. We are told to display, to model the one that literally gave his life up for his church. The one who continually comes back to us in love. The one who continues to pour himself out for us. That's what we're to model. If that seems easy, then you don't understand how much you are loved and how costly that love is. When God links our roles as men to the Father in relation to the Son and to Jesus in relation to his church, he is calling us to a staggering standard that we can't meet. 
we should be dependent. We should be examining our hearts and our minds. And women, when God links your roles as women to the son in relation to the father and to the church in relation to Jesus, he is calling you to a staggering role, a staggering standard that you cannot meet. We should be the collection of the desperately dependent because we have these incredible opportunities and we are sinners. We are drawn to this world. We struggle being completely devoted to Christ. We struggle relating rightly to one another. We should be desperately dependent. These are the sorts of things that we can forget and leave behind and we start interacting with each other based on pragmatics and our flesh and what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable. We're used to being around people and interacting just based on what's in front of us. This reality though that this, we, husband and wife, male and female, are a picture of something greater has to be an intentional part of our life. That pilot that's flying his plane and has the picture of his wife and his daughter in front of them, in front of him, he doesn't have that picture there so he can forget what's behind. He has the picture there to remind him of what's behind. When we look at each other, when we think of our roles and our positions and our relationships, they are designed to point us to the greater reality. That is hard. We've got to be trusting God in that. That brings us to the third step in our answer. Two roles, one mission. Two roles, one mission. God created this world in order to make the fullness of who he is known. And in his infinite wisdom, he decided that reconciling rebels like us to himself through his own son was the perfect way to do that. In the husband-wife relationship, both of those are made visible, who God is and what he is doing. The father-son relationship and the Jesus church relationship with his people. Both of those are made visible in the husband-wife relationship. By, very, by the very virtue of who we are and the relationships in which God places us, we get to display God's image. Beyond that, we get to display God's nature and we get to, to display God's purposes. Husband and wife individually get to do a large portion of that. Together, you get to do even more of that. Men and women, those of us that aren't married, we get to do a large portion of that now. But our posture is to be the same, regardless of how much of that we get to image forth at this point. When we relate right as men and women, when husbands and wives, when you relate rightly, God is made visible. The love of the Father for the Son, the devotion of the Son for the Father can be seen. The love of God, the sacrificial love of Jesus for his people is made tangible. That's not an accident. That is on purpose because God loves making himself known and drawing other rebels to himself to be reconciled through Jesus. 
That is what he is about in this world. That is why he made us as we are. God designed this world and he designed you and me so that by living intentionally by faith, we put him on display and we put his purposes on display. As man and woman, we are intentionally two image bearers on one mission. There is no difference in the mission that God has called us as men and women to. The original question, though, is about the church, not about marriage. And so, let's tie it together. We're going to come, come to that. Last step, which brings us full circle to the original question. Two roles and one church. The original question was, what is a proper understanding of the roles of men and women in the church? And in order to answer that, we have been answering what is the purpose for which God made us man and woman. And so just to recap, there's three reasons that God made us man and woman. He made us man and woman to bear his image. He made us man and woman to enable us to display the father-son relationship within the Trinity. And he made us man and woman to enable us to display the relationship between Jesus and his people. That's why God made us as he chose to make us, rather than making us one gender-neutral being, which he could have done. He chose not to on purpose. So far, that's all been in the realm of marriage. What does that mean in the life of the church? Well, if the church is the body of Christ, the gathering of his people that exists for his purposes then the roles which God designed to make his plan visible and his nature visible don't get reversed or tossed out or left behind when we move into the church. Who God made you to be to make him visible doesn't end when you walk through that door. It comes right in with you because we are the people of God. It's kind of unthinkable that the patterns that God establishes in the family to reflect his relationship to his church would not also be pertinent within his church. It just flows that what God is doing, the pattern established in the family, carries into the church. And there's one clear statement that helps us catch that. It is a statement that, is, uh, that many bristle at, but I hope to unpack it a little bit. 1 Timothy 2:12 says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man; rather, she is to remain quiet." In the father-son relationship, the father overflows with love, and the son is absolutely devoted. In the Jesus church relationship, Jesus sacrificially loves, and we his people are absolutely devoted to him. Keep in mind that the husband-wife, the male-female relationship exists to display those, to make those visible. If we forget that, then passages like 1 Timothy 2.12 don't really make sense. But if we understand that God made us as we are to make him visible, then we can begin to catch the why of 1 Timothy 2.12. All of church life is open to women to participate in freely. 
all of it, except for one spot reserved in this verse. The overall teaching and leadership of the church is reserved for men. Not because God doesn't trust women. You bear his image. But because the, the picture that God placed in marriage of who he is in the Trinity and of his relationship with us, his, us, his, us, his people, carries over into the life of the church. And if that's not reflected within the church structure, then we as a gathered people can't properly bear the image of God. We can't make him visible. We can't make him tangible. It's not that God is trying to isolate women. All of church life is open except for one spot. And God preserves that one spot so that the church structure reflects what he has invested in the family structure. And in doing that, he preserves our ability to make him visible and tangible. In the family, when the relational roles are, are reversed, we no longer get to make God visible the way that we do when we are following the patterns that he has set. And the same is true in the church. Our ability to make God visible and tangible is hindered. So what's a proper understanding of men's and women's roles in the church? Let's wrap this up. God made us man and woman to make him known. It was an intentional choice. If we were all one monolithic being, the image of God would not be clearly displayed. He chose to make us man and woman. He chose to put us in relationships that model, that, that, that are a picture of a greater reality behind it. Of the relationship of the Father and Son within the Godhead and of the relationship between God, Jesus and us, his people. God chose to make that why we are the way that we are. When we step out of those roles, we are veiling the person and the purpose of God. When we step out of those roles, we are veiling the person and the purpose of God. We confuse rather than clarify. The stakes are too high for that. That's why God has a statement that says, women, it's all good. Come on in. Serve the way that God has wired you to. Use the gifts that God has given you. Use the personality and the abilities that God has invested in you. But I want my church structure to reflect who I am and what I am doing. And in the roles and relationships that I have established, men, husbands, you get to play the part of the Father in the Trinity. And wives, you get to play the part of Jesus. We both make him visible. In the church life, husbands, we are tasked with reflecting Christ and his sacrificial love. And women, you are tasked with displaying the proper response of us, God's people, to him. That is hard. And that is worth preserving within our church structure, within church life, so that when people come, they can begin to see God. That's how it happens. Remember that, that serviceman, I mentioned the, the pilot with a picture of his, his wife and daughter. 
if he gradually altered that picture, and then after many months of him changing her hair color and shape of her nose, if he showed us that picture, we would have no idea who it represents. There is a reality behind that picture. It's his wife. But if the picture gets altered, it no longer represents his wife. We are a picture of the Godhead and of God's purposes. And if we alter that picture, we are blurring the reality that we're supposed to be painting people towards. The stakes couldn't be higher. God loves saving people. And he has chosen to gather his people to build his kingdom on earth, to go out with his message to save people and bring them in so that Christ is exalted and the glory of the Father is seen. That is what is happening. That is what we get to be a part of. The stakes couldn't be higher. We should be desperate. And when we are desperate, we should pray. So I'm going to ask you to pray for one thing. Just think back through what we've talked about and ask yourself, what is hardest about all of that for me? Ask yourselves, of all that we just talked about, what is hardest for me? By the way, don't think of someone else right now. It's very easy at these moments to be like, well, so-and-so needs to do this because then I could do this. And Don't do that. It's probably true. They might need to do that, but that's between them and God. This moment right now is between us and God. So think back. What is the hardest thing for me? And whatever that thing is, I want you to now pray, Father, I want to display you better. Would you help me with? And fill in the blank. Let's pray. God, we come to you a needy people. We come to you a sinful people, and yet we come to you as your people. And God, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that in the midst of our need, the very provision for our righteousness is captured in the picture that we are to portray. And and in the midst of the pain that has been hoisted upon us, and in the midst of the sin in our own hearts, and in the midst of this fallen world, it is hard for us to embrace the pictures, the roles that you have designed so that we can make you known. And so, Father, we come to you with our need. And we ask that you would help to change our hearts and our minds, to align our hearts and our minds with yours, to align our desires with yours, to align our purposes with yours, so that we can can move and relate in this world in a way that displays you to our families and to those watching so that we can gather as a church and we can function in a way that makes you known, that makes you visible, Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit. We're dependent upon you and we ask that you would make yourself crystal clear in the homes and the church life of Kishwaukee Bible Church not because we are good and able, but because you are glorious and mighty and absolutely worth it. And so we praise you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.